This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Geography explains why the Soviet Union has sent an army into Afghanistan to dominate that country, and if they could, Iran and Pakistan. The U.S. had been helping the Mujahideen, had been providing them with money, had providing them with, with arms, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Saudis said, no, we want U.S. military coming in here and basing here to help fight. And Osama bin Laden was massively offended by this. Al-Qaeda went from just an idea to an actual organization uh, planning and plotting against the United States. A number of innocent people lost their lives. Hundreds were injured and thousands were struck with fear in their hearts when an explosion rocked the basement of the World Trade Center. Simultaneous explosions at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania left more than 200 people dead. It wasn't until 1998 that we see kind of Zawahiri and Bin Laden coming together and they issue the 1998 fatwa, which effectively declared al-Qaeda's war. The last millennium plot Imagine if they were successful. The millennium will go down in history as a totally different event. Episode 3, Warning Signs. Suspected terror mastermind Osama bin Laden has declared his own war on the U.S. Authorities believe bin Laden supports the faction of those arrested in the U.S. The other thing that was going on in the millennium was a terrorist attack or terrorist plot that we did not know much about. Former FBI supervisory special agent Ali Soufan. It was uh, to attack a Navy ship in aid in Yemen, USS the Sullivans. They had loaded the boat with explosives. It was windy and choppy seas that day. And unfortunately, when they tried to unhook it to send it out on the attack run, it had filled with water and sunk at the pier. Former commander of the USS Cole. Kirk Lippold. Al-Qaeda panicked and left, realized within a day or so that nobody had detected what had happened. They came back. They recovered the car, the trailer, the boat. That goes wrong because they don't carry out the plot uh, competently and the explosive sink. Former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andrew McCarthy. But they use the intelligence uh, to try to improve the plot. The Al-Qaeda meeting in January of 2000 in Malaysia was a major event, and it was known to be a major event at the time. Co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, Amy Zegert. That meeting uh, was so important that it was being briefed to the CIA director, the FBI director, and the National Security Advisor. One former senior intelligence official later described it to me as the Al-Qaeda convention. This number that Al-Wali gave to John NSF in Kenya, that number was given to the intelligence community. The intelligence community were listening to that number. They found out that there was a meeting that was happening in Southeast Asia around the millennium. So uh, that meeting, um, you know, uh, was identified uh, because uh, somebody called that number in Yemen that Al-Wali provided. 
and asked the person who answered the phone to come uh, to Malaysia. Later on, we know that that person was Khalid Mehdar. Midhar had been in the United States previously. Border counsel for the 9-11 Commission, Janice Kephart. He had gone to uh, flight school in Arizona, not done very well, but he had gone. He had spent time here um, that others had not. He happened to be on a call that was the same line used by Osama bin Laden. That call was related to a terrorist leadership meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, And so the CIA knew he was going. The CIA found out that one of the participants was a man named Khalid al-Madar. They learned his full name. They got a copy of his passport. And they learned one other crucial piece of information. Khalid al-Madar held a multiple entry U.S. visa inside his passport, which he presumably intended to use at some point. We continued asking questions. We asked in November of 2000, we asked in April, we asked in June, anything about Southeast Asia. The answer was always, we don't know. We started our own investigation. We figured out that uh, those guys uh, met in Bangkok and then um, they, uh, you know, Kalad was in Malaysia. And we, we were able to kind of like pinpoint their movement, uh, phone numbers, uh, contact lists. We always updated our memos and sent back to the U.S. government. And we were told we don't know what we're talking about. There's a photograph of uh, Almadar with Khalad uh, that uh, came into the possession of the Central Intelligence Agency. In May 2001, uh, there was a CIA official who had the chance to disclose to an FBI counterpart uh, the relationship between that they suspected between these two people uh, and that never that information was never disclosed. So the CIA analyst showed an FBI colleague a picture of Almadar, but didn't say the picture had been taken at a meeting with Khalad and didn't say that Almadar had a U.S. visa. The Central Intelligence Agency lost uh, the members of this meeting when they moved shortly after that from Malaysia to Bangkok, Thailand. So this could have been a crucial opportunity for the agency to have continued their surveillance of these men. But the CIA lost the trail and then never notified the State Department or the FBI about these two suspected operatives for the next year and a half. All of our intelligence agencies, the CIA, uh, the FBI, all of them were siloed. They each had their own information and they didn't share information. Fox News Sunday anchor. Chris Wallace. And so the CIA had indications that you had uh, some terrorist activity going on in Europe. Uh, The FBI is aware that there are some people who have entered the country, uh, even knew that some of them had, had gone to flight school, but the dots aren't connected. They don't put it together. Muhammad Atta was well-educated. He had an um, architectural degree out of the University of Cairo. He had um, come to Germany uh, by a request to a German family that he was friendly with. They invited him to come to Hamburg. He came to Hamburg to study. They considered him smart, charismatic, pleasant. That was in 1993. Um, But he didn't like Christians. 
and he became increasingly abrasive about his his views and increasingly tended towards violent jihadi views. He was very anti-Christian, very anti-Semitic. He was also a decision maker, a leader. So he started a cell in, um, in Hamburg and he started to travel to Afghanistan. And by 1998, he was like, he was a changed man. He was uh, very much somebody who was intelligent and uh, had leadership qualities and yet the violent jihadi belief in the suicide mission. So he's kind of the perfect operational lead. He was one of the ringleaders, and he was the one that uh, got a lot of people around. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent, Greg Pelcott. And they used this this hub of uh, student housing, uh, cheap apartments, uh, radical mosque, uh, gathering places to to uh, really assemble uh, at least one or two of the important cells. He didn't tolerate any dissent. He was really anti-American and anti-Semitic. And he began to advocate violent jihad. And then he built a cell. The Hamburg cell was a, a grouping of individuals of uh, Muslim backgrounds from uh, from the from the Mideast uh, who happened to be gathering there. Some were at a university, a polytechnic uh, school. Some were gathering at a radical mosque. Uh, some were just using that as a as a way uh, under the radar of German intelligence to to form ideas and to form a cell and to form a, uh, a, a way of thinking uh, that could uh, be uh, utilized in a more uh, constructive, destructive way. In the fall of 2000, I was in command of USS Cole, and the mission we had spent the last year training for was to leave our home port of Norfolk, Virginia, cross the Atlantic, operate in the Mediterranean for a short period, and then go to the Middle East. The actual mission was to go to the North Arabian Gulf and enforce United Nations sanctions against the country of Iraq that had been put in place as a result of the first Gulf War in the early 1990s. Early the morning of the 12th of October, Two tugs came out, met the ship just outside of the mouth of the harbor. A pilot came out who is the individual who guides the ship into port. And the way the Port of Aden is shaped, it's like a large bowl. And we would go right up the middle. We'd make a series of right-hand turns until we got into the middle of the port on the right-hand side. When we got into the middle, I made really my first force protection decision. I turned the ship around to moor it starboard side or right side to appear out in the middle of the harbor. One of the things that happened that morning is as part of routine harbor operations is we contracted for three garbage barges to come out to the ship to take off trash, plastics, hazardous material, things that we can't dump at sea. And for $150, no questions asked, they were going to make three runs to the ship. We we made the decision to bring those boats alongside, one tied up in the middle of the ship, one tied up back by the flight deck. The crew brought all that trash up, loaded up the boats. They were halfway across the harbor when a third boat came toward us. On October 12th of uh, 2000, um, a boat that was initially purchased and fitted to be used against the USS Sullivan's with two suicide bombers on board of it came um, close to the USS Cole. Um, they salute the sailors who were you know, on deck and some of them were fueling uh, the ship. They waved, the sailors waved back um, 
the sailors were not concerned about the boat coming close because so many people want so many times when you go to these uh, ports many people come to get like food or candy or you know gifts from from the people on the ship uh, so they thought they were coming for something like this and uh, the boat uh, came very close to the ship uh, and uh, then the two suicide bombers after they waved and saluted the uh, Uh, sailors, uh, they blew themselves up. It was not a Zodiac boat. It did not race across the harbor and ram the ship and detonate. The boat that came down the side of USS Cole looked just like the other two garbage barges. That was why the security teams weren't that concerned about it. It was 24 foot long, center console, outboard motor. Two individuals were in it, actually stood up and kind of waved at the crew. A young fireman, as it came down the side of the ship, he, he thought to himself, something just doesn't seem right. What he had realized is as the boat went by, he had thought to himself, boy, that sure is awful clean for a garbage barge. That was the only thing untoward that was noticed as it came to the center of the ship and then detonated in something the Navy had never planned for. We had never trained for, and it was a waterborne improvised explosive device with two suicide bombers that blew a 40 by 40 foot hole in the side of the ship. And now you had pieces of boat and bomber all over the top side of USS Cole. You could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up into the right. And as we were literally being lifted off the water, up out of the water, an estimated six to eight feet, the ship came up, and we were rocking from side to side and sliding back down in the water. Power failed, lights went out, ceiling tiles popped out. I literally came up in the brace position, grabbing my desk on the balls of my feet as everything popped up and slammed back down. The first person I saw was my chief gunner's mate. He was reestablishing the defensive perimeter around the ship. He started to worry about me, that I was going to become a sniper target. We talked to each other for a second, then walked over to the port side of the ship. I leaned over, and now my worst fears were confirmed. You could see the hole in the side of the ship. You could tell it was an external explosion because all the metal had been shoved inward. When I looked at the back end of USS Cole, there were lights on. The back one-third had power, which means I had a generator running, which means I could get power to pumps, which means I'd be able to save the ship. As I look over, my senior chief gas turbine technician, my senior most enlisted in the engineering department, the most experienced in damage control on the ship, in fact, he was the head of my damage control training team, is lying there number three in priority order to get off the ship and motions me over. So I come over to him and I kneel down. He reaches up and he grabs my hand. And he says, Captain, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I look down at him and I said, Senior Chief, I don't want to hear that. I want you to think your wife, Lisa, and those two blonde-haired kids that want to see their daddy again. He said, but sir, you don't know how badly I'm hurt. In fact, I did. The Chief's mess is just forward of the galley area that was the epicenter of the blast. He had been sitting there in the lounge area and had been blown all the way to the back of the chief's mess, about 25 feet head over heels. And when the rescue teams got to him, he's flat on his back, looking up at him. 
and says, hey, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm just pinned in by the debris. But I think there's body parts around here. Rescue teams don't say a word. They just bend down and lift all the debris off of him. When they get down to him, it wasn't body parts. He had a compound fracture to his right leg that was folded up and across his chest with his boot near his left ear. So they reached down, flipped his leg out straight, strapped him to a litter, brought him back up to the midships area. We got him started with an IV, gave him a shot of morphine. We would evacuate him off the ship. He would end up surviving that day, and I would actually do his uh, retirement ceremony several years later. As more bodies were pulled from the bomb-damaged USS Cole, an important clue turned up not far away in the port city of Aden. Yemeni investigators say they found bomb-making equipment in a house, and they believe two men who spent some time there are linked to the bombing of the coal. The men are apparently not from Yemen and are possibly Saudi. This comes as Yemen's president now admits the explosion was a criminal act, not an accident, as he first claimed. You know, 17 sailors uh, were killed, uh, 40 injured, and if it wasn't for the heroic efforts of the crew and the captain, uh, the ship could have really sunk and created ecological disaster uh, in, uh, in Aden. Uh, but uh, Al-Qaeda was able to hit an American ship, and that was a great uh, PR success uh, for the organization. Meantime, Osama bin Laden, reputed mastermind of the U.S. embassy bombings in Africa, spoke out in a Pakistani newspaper. As a possible suspect in the coal bombing, he warned the U.S. not to attack his home in retaliation, and he vowed to continue fighting the enemies of Islam. The coal bombing was interesting because it was against a U.S. military target. AEI fellow and advisor to Critical Threats Project, Catherine Zimmerman. And the Yemeni government at the time was not as cooperative uh, as other governments uh, in terms of facilitating kind of U.S. law enforcement and and. Uh, and other agencies in trying to unravel what had happened uh, with the coal bombing itself. All these very different Americans, all with their different stories, their lifelines and love ties, answered the same call of service and found themselves on the USS Cole, headed for the Persian Gulf, where our forces are working to keep peace and stability in a region that could explode and disrupt the entire world. Their tragic loss reminds us that even when America is not at war, the men and women of our military still risk their lives for peace. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When you start to see the rise of Islamic terrorism and radicalism. And suddenly we have a new fierce enemy, which is able to take us on, not with armies in the battlefield, but in a, a totally asymmetric way with bombings in, in embassies or attacks on 
on ships from a speedboat loaded with explosives, we weren't really ready or prepared for that. And it, we were very slow to, uh, to, to, to build up our defenses, to build up our, our uh, ability to take that on. FBI Director Louis Free met with Yemeni President Ali Abdullah Saleh, and he paid a visit to the coal, describing the damaged part of the ship as a tangled mass of metal and wire. Free and Attorney General Janet Reno are promising full cooperation with the Yemenis. We're working to support the Yemeni police. Uh, they have taken some important steps, and we want to work with them in every way possible. Yemeni investigators say documents have now been found in the apartment where earlier this week they found bomb-making equipment. And they say a 12-year-old boy reported he was paid to watch a car for a man who launched an inflatable boat into Aden Harbor the day of the bombing. The man never returned. The FBI and, and law enforcement were tracking uh, some terrorists uh, within our country. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. It never really appeared that uh, a, they had put together a serious strategy to try to really uh, attack the United States of America. That uh, these were just, uh, you know, efforts that that were sporadic. Uh, and that were not well defined. The USS Cole happened in October of 2000. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on the Fox News Channel, Bill Hemmer. And the country was being ramped up for a general election that was only a month away. And although it got a lot of coverage at the time, it seemed to fade because the election was never decided. We went into a 36, 37-day recount, and the USS Cole was put in the rearview mirror. But yet again, when you look back on that moment, they were very effective in how they went after that ship. Almost everybody thought that it was Al-Qaeda that was behind the bombing of the USS Cole. Uh, but the Clinton administration was very careful about this, and they said they wanted a thorough investigation. And you've got to remember, this is the very end of Bill Clinton's time in office. It's the end of his second term. You have the election in November. Now you have all of the controversy about the, 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 the ballots in Florida and the recount. Uh, and I think that in that particular time that Clinton was very cautious and conservative about the idea of a reprisal uh, as a lame duck president uh, against our enemies in, in the Middle East and particularly Al-Qaeda. So he really left it to the next president, whoever that was going to be, to respond. Of course, it ends up being George W. Bush, Bush 43. And now suddenly the whole question of how to deal with Al-Qaeda and terrorism uh, is on his plate. The U.S. did retaliate against bin Laden after the embassy bombings, and officials are not ruling out military action this time against whoever's to blame for the attack on the coal. As a candidate, Governor Bush had a pretty amazing set of in-depth policy briefings in 1999 and 2000 that dealt with these issues of uh, foreign policy advisors and defense policy advisors. Former White House Deputy Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush, Carl Rove like Don Rumsfeld and Condi Rice and um, Richard B. Cheney, uh, former Defense Secretary, Paul Wolfowitz, a former Defense Department official. They'd, um, they discussed these issues in depth. And as a result, President Bush, then candidate Bush, gave a speech at the Citadel in the spring of 2000. 
in which he talked about the need to modernize the American military to meet the new challenges of the 21st century, which would increasingly include non-state actors. We need to get a fair and accurate count to resolve this election. The American people want to make certain that every vote counts and that every vote is counted. So I hope that, obviously hope the justices in Florida rule in our favor. We'll see what they do. All these legal wranglings happening as the official certification comes down and is expected at 6 p.m. Sunday. In Tallahassee, Florida, Brett Baer, Fox News. The nation became consumed by hanging chads. So we essentially got put on the back burner and the press was paying attention to what was going on in Gore versus Bush and the Supreme Court and all that whole machination to pick who is going to be the next president. And unfortunately, in all of that, President Clinton kept raising the bar and saying, we're going to do it. We're going to do nothing. We're going to do nothing. We're going to do nothing and then did nothing. But unfortunately, when the Bush administration took over, they took an attitude of, hey, we're forward looking, not backward acting. If it had been important, the Clinton administration would have started something. And they, too, did nothing in response to the attack on USS Cole. But I I will say this in defense to a little degree of both of them. We as a nation were unwilling to wrap our minds around the fact that we were going to be declaring a military conflict or war against what was considered to be a criminal non-state entity. The U.S. has not docked in Aden Port where the coal bombing occurred since that attack. Uh, So, you know, there has been effects that Al-Qaeda generated by these attacks uh, in, you know, at that kind of big strategic level. I think the challenge for bin Laden was that they ultimately did not do what he wanted them to do. Bin Laden wanted the attacks to galvanize additional support for his cause. He wanted the attacks to scare the United States away, uh, wherein both of the attacks fortified American resolve to remain engaged in the region with our partners. And the kind of transformation that occurred was Bin Laden understanding that In order to attack the United States, he needed to hit America where it hurts, and that's in the homeland. In the late 80s, when the Soviet Union crumbles uh, and the Cold War is over, uh, there were a lot of people in the United States, some very smart people, who thought that, as they put it, history is over, that that the defining fact of, of the 20th century, which was First, obviously, World War II and and the Nazis and fascism, but then the rise of communism and the Cold War, which lasted from 1945 until almost the end of the 20th century, that 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 was over, too, and that the U.S. could focus on domestic problems and 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 repairing the the inequities, the problems at home. I think because of the sense of relief uh, and the sense of, of history is over, the Cold War has ended, we won, they lost, uh, we let down our guard. According to a conservative group that is trying to have his law license revoked, President Clinton argues in court papers that his testimony about Monica Lewinsky was not false as he defines that term. The president has refused to make public his definition of false, 
or releases arguments against a possible disbarment. But we just were very slow to understand the threat. Host of The Brian Kilmeade Show and co-host of Fox and Friends, Brian Kilmeade. And it was the perfect storm. We were so focused on impeachment and Monica Lewinsky's dress, we ignored what were red flags of the 98 embassy attacks and the USS Cole attack. And with Clinton as a lame duck trying to save his legacy, he thought and talked about it after that. If I did something in December on my way out, they would think it's all about my legacy. Almost all of them, those terrorists coming out of Saudi Arabia especially, went and got a new passport, a new Saudi passport, prior to applying for a U.S. visa. This would mean that any stamps in their passport of going to terrorist nations like Afghanistan, which would have been a telltale sign of um, potential terrorist activity, were swapped out, uh, thrown away, and they went to their um, to the Saudi embassy, to the Saudi uh, passport agency, got new passports, applied for U.S. visa remotely. In Saudi, you could apply for a U.S. visa through a travel agency without being um, interviewed. They quickly figured this out because 16 Saudis were successful in acquiring visas. Five other Yemenis had tried to get U.S. visas, but they were denied visas, not because of terrorism or anything, but based on economic reasons. One of the biggest reasons to deny somebody a U.S. visa in those times was Um, that you believe that they're going to rely on the United States for economic support. And there was no sense of we got to go answer for the coal attack in 2001. There was no debate about Al-Qaeda. Then not a word came up in any of the Gore-Bush debates. So this was not on on the forefront of America's mind, but for those who were getting briefed on a regular basis, it should have been. They found the ability to take dead terrorists who had died in suicide missions or or died on the battlefield somewhere. They would keep those passports and when a new terrorist would come along that needed to get entry somewhere but they wanted to hide his identity, they literally would swap out the photos, right? So there was an entire process of enabling terrorists to travel over borders unknown. The screams from the mouth of 10-year-old David Peltier, a shark clamping down in his leg while he was surfing with his family on Virginia Beach. He was trying to fight the shark away from the kid. You have to remember in the summer of 2001, there were essentially two stories in America. One was the disappearance of a Washington, D.C. intern by the name of Shonda Levy. And the other was shark attacks off the Atlantic coast. And they got the bulk of the attention for month after month after month. In August of that year, President Bush went back to his ranch in Crawford, Texas, and we were waiting for a decision on stem cell research. And it was a big deal for the White House. And we were told that at the end of his um, August break, he would have a decision on how the U.S. would proceed with stem, adult stem cell research. I have concluded that we should allow federal funds to be used for research on these existing stem cell lines, where the life and death decision has already been made. They decided the safest thing to do because the U.S., probably because the U.S. had a, a more um, uh, in-depth visa process, which included Um, some degree of background investigation, they decided to 
use those who could get into the country using visas. Um, and so everybody involved in this operation got a U.S. visa. Most of us in Washington were tracking Gary Condit. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Congressman from California who had had an affair with uh, Chandra Levy, who had been an, an intern, 24-year-old intern at the Bureau of Prisons, and she wound up dead. And so most of the summer, people in Washington chased around Gary Condit. Coming up, will Chandra Levy's disappearance mean the end of Gary Condit's congressional career? We'll have that story after a break. So Germany wasn't accepting travel agency visa applications the way Saudi was, but it was indeed a visa waiver country. And in reciprocity, the U.S. does not require visas for tourists from Germany or about 20 other plus countries that are involved in our visa waiver program. It's a reciprocity program that we have. Because Ada had been in Germany for five years, um, he was treated for a tourist visa like a German citizen. When Susan Levy was asked if she hopes Gary Condit retires, she said her only hope is that her daughter is found. And lest we forget, Chandra Levy has now been missing for 130 days. You know, it's a good, juicy story, but it isn't a matter of, of, uh, of tremendous national import. And yet that was the rage in the summer of 2001. Where was Chandra Levy and what did Gary Condit have to do with it? So he enters the U.S. In, on July 3rd, 2000. He's with his best friend from the Hamburg cell, Marwan Al-Shehi. They enroll in Huffman Aviation in Florida. And after this, they pretty much, as far as we can track them, do pretty much everything together. Um, Huffman Aviation is in Florida. They both quickly applied to change their immigration status from tourist to student. And they both use the exact same information on the immigration application down to the bank account. Chatter is bad intelligence, meaning that you don't really speak the language or you're intercepting information or radio transmissions or telephone calls or what have you. And every other word you hear Dodger Stadium or Brooklyn Bridge, but you don't know what it means. And so you need to kind of fill in the blanks, but you know they're talking about something, whatever the something is. And there was this increase in chatter over the summer of 2001. So they're at Huffman. Their training's going very badly. Their English is bad and um, they're not passing their tests. And they move over to another aviation school in Florida called Jones. At Jones, um, the instructor reported that Otto was very aggressive, that more than once he tried to force the controls over to himself even before he had passed any tests. We hear periodically about Al-Qaeda and they were sage voices occasionally would appear on television to warn about this threat and, and how we were unprepared for it and so on. Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume. But um, uh, we, were, we had not hardened this country as a target. You know, they'd been, you know, we had, we had for a long time, we've been going through metal detectors in airports but that was because of, of the threat of hijackings. I had had a meeting with uh, all the top generals in the Army from all over the world in, in August. Former Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Jack Keane. And I told them it was just a matter of time before one of our military bases is going to be attacked by the radical Islamists. They've been talking about it for years. 
and eventually it is going to happen. We need to start changing the rules uh, at our military base and harden them up for security in terms of who gains access, what's the what what permits somebody to gain access to our military bases. Our, our military bases, by and large, are open to the public, and you can get in there by saying you want to visit it. You may have to, you know, fill out a little visitors form, but it's kind of a pro forma thing. And I recognize that uh, that we were going to be vulnerable on our military bases if we didn't harden them up. One of the most haunting missed opportunities uh, to possibly stop the 9-11 plot. Amy Zegert. On August 23rd, the CIA finally notifies the FBI that two suspected terrorists, Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, are probably already inside the United States and they need to be found. And what the FBI then does is it labels the manhunt for these two terrorists routine, the lowest level of priority. It gives the manhunt to only one of the 56 field offices in the FBI. So it really wasn't nationwide. And it hands the manhunt to the one of the most junior special agents on the squad, someone who had just finished his rookie year uh, in the FBI. The CIA finally shares this information with the FBI and says, yo, we think that these this Midhar dude is in the United States. Can you help us find it? Janice Kephart. And the FBI was like, well, we only have entry records, immigration entry records in the United States. We don't have exit records. We can try to find out if he's here. But they quickly came to the conclusion that they couldn't find him. So they just assumed he had left the country. Afghanistan, beautiful, but some claim under its hardline Taliban regime, barbaric. Timeless works of art smashed on a whim. Groups allegedly connected to deadly terror acts given safe haven. Bad economic conditions and drought threatening millions with starvation. And the people forced to follow a super harsh version of Islamic law. Women undercover without schooling or jobs. Men towing the religious line. The Hindu minority forced to wear clothing tags. No entertainment or fun punishment severe and public. I was in Afghanistan for the first time in May of 2001. Greg Pelcott. We went there to take a look at what this uh, group was all about. And we went there because at that very time, it was figured out that it was bin Laden who was there in that country being hosted by the Taliban. Uh, the country itself was quite remarkable. Uh, it was sort of going back into the Stone Age in terms of social and civilized norms. Uh, all women had to be uh, covered with that all-encompassing uh, burqas. No unaccompanied women out on the street. No women in any kind of a, a job or professional capacity except for some uh, medical uh uses uh, no uh, girls in schools and uh, you could tell that things were quite straight we were driving around and you'd be stopped at checkpoints and if you had an audio cassette in your car music band of course by these folks uh, they'd take the audio cassette out of your car uh, string up the uh, tape and hang it on a tree uh, we went up to uh, Bamiyan that's a location with some ancient beautiful gigantic uh, Buddhist statues and we saw that they had just defaced them because uh, statues, any kind of uh, representation of either gods or human beings, that was not allowed either. 
After uh, the Taliban um, controlled most of Afghanistan, many Afghans were against the Taliban. Ali Sufan. They didn't like what they stand for. Um, some of them uh, were against the Taliban based on ideological uh, views, and some of them based on ethnic uh, views. You know, Taliban were mostly Pashtun, but there are other uh, ethnicities in Pakistan that felt threatened by uh, by the Taliban uh, regime. Ahmad Shah Massoud was one of the leaders of the Mujahideen against the Soviets. Ahmad Shah Massoud was called the Lion of Panjshir. He uh, um, basically was one of the main Mujahideen leaders at the time in, um, you know, defeating uh, the Soviets. So Ahmad Shah Massoud being, uh, uh, you know, known in the Mujahideen uh, community in Afghanistan, um, established the Northern Alliance uh, to uh, fight uh, the Taliban. And uh, the Taliban uh, main enemy at the time was Ahmad Shah Massoud. They didn't think about anything else except how to defeat Ahmad Shah Massoud. He was a real thorn in their side. Massoud was an interesting fellow. He uh, was a player with the uh, anti-Soviet militia leaders back in the 80s and before that in the 70s. I think they all went to university together. And and, uh, they were anti-communist, but not in the way you would think it, we, we would be anti-communist, anti-communist because they were pro-Islam, pro, pro-Muslim, pro, uh, pro, pro-nationalism. And, and they, saw, they saw the Soviet Union as an entity that was trying to strip them of their identity. Uh, he was uh, called the Lion of the Panjir. Panjir is a, the area in the northern part of that country. And he had a great following. Uh, and he uh, gathered many militias in the north that uh, followed him right down to the right down to the death in, in many occasions and he was able to be one of the last men standing against not just the uh, Soviets uh, but also in the civil war that uh, ensued after the departure of the uh, Soviet Union before the arrival of uh, the Taliban. Osama bin Laden uh, brought a lot of Arab Mujahideen to Afghanistan. Many of them used to go to the front lines north of Kabul to fight against the uh, alliance, the Northern Alliance. Um, so um, Osama bin Laden knew that he needs to give the Taliban a gift to make them 100% supportive of him. He knew that he was you know, planning that plane operations, as they call it at the time. And the gift that he gave to the Taliban was the assassination of Ahmad Samashoud. Legendary freedom fighter Ahmad Shah Massoud, who fought against the Soviets and the Taliban, only to be assassinated. Regarding bin Laden himself, uh, nowhere to be found. Uh, he was at that time based in a couple of locations in around Kandahar in the southern part of the country where uh, where the uh, Taliban and where the Pashtuns were very strong, but mostly in the eastern part of the country around a, a town called Host and then up into the mountains uh, hugging uh, Pakistan. That's the famous Tora Bora Mountains. Uh, and uh, that's where he was hanging out and very much out of the uh, public view, at least the public view that, that we got uh, from our, oh, about a two-week trip into the lair of, of the Taliban. From Osama bin Laden's perspective, the assassination of Massoud is not only a gift to the Taliban, but it's also 
um, an elimination of a threat that the United States and the world, frankly, can use against the Taliban regime and against his people in Afghanistan. Because if you support Ahmad Shah Massoud, he might be able to, you know, go down and maybe, you know, invade uh, Taliban territory. After the assassination of Ahmad Shah Massoud, it was very obvious to many of us who were working in the field at the time that Al-Qaeda might be planning for something big. And uh, we were right. On the night of September 10th, I was in Atlanta working for CNN, and I was hosting the 10 p.m. broadcast, and we were looking for news. Bill Hemmer. And there was a rumor that Michael Jordan was coming out of retirement to return to the NBA. And we lit our hair on fire because we had something to do. And we chased this story, and we we got great guests, and we all thought, wow, what a great product we did. That We, we covered this story. We had every angle, interviews and players, et cetera. We were all over it. And we went home that night, and we woke up to a very different world the next morning. Next time on Fox News Rewind 9-11. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.